Okay, so I'm going to be concurrently speaking in both Second Life and over the teleconference. So um, if you have questions in Second Life, uh, please direct them to Jet Burns, who's here on stage with me. If you have them in real life, Peter will um, tell me how to make sure I get those correct. So uh, welcome today to a tutorial session on sharing knowledge in Second Life. Uh, this is really just a chance to orient those of you who are not familiar with Second Life that may have heard about it, um, to get familiar with the concept of virtual worlds for collaboration and to build on some of the momentum that Susan Turnbull's group uh, started on Tuesday with her collaboration workshop on the subject. So um, for those of you who have slides or are following Peter's slides, we'll start with slide number two. The context that got um, those of us at NASA first interested in the idea of virtual worlds for collaboration really looks at the heart at the issue of having to um, think about how we share and, uh, and work in an environment in which we have four very distinct, very active generations in the workplace that we haven't had before. So, in the American workplace, it's kind of been dominated um, by a variety of generations over time, but now that's not quite so much the case. So we still have folks from the 30s to 50s, 1930s to 50s generation, those folks who were born during that time. Um, and, and what's interesting is when you think about the anthropomorphic views of these, it's really the idea that the focus for that group was often on society and that friendships were often forged through adversity. Stay with me. This will make sense in a moment. And I know this isn't true for every member, but as cultural studies of these generations have occurred over time, it really does have a, a propensity to resonate with people in that generation. Those who were born and kind of grew up during the 60s and 70s, their focus was really on community and that those friendships got forged through identification with a cause external to um, that person. The 80s and 90s era generation really became a focus on individuals and those friendships got forged as people worked on tasks or individual, for the accomplishment of their individual goals and um, friendships got forged as how people helped each other achieve those goals. Um, and, and the advent, and those three generations have worked together for some time. But the advent of this latest generation, some of which are called the millennials or Gen, Gen M for millennial or media, um, and the sort of uh, younger folks within the Gen X and Y uh, generations, that those groups really um, have brought in a new dimension into the workplace. And some corporations embrace that and some corporations don't. But that dimension is really that friendships are created and thrive virtually. So those of you who have children at home, teenagers, um, those of you who might be in your earlier years or have become uh, sort of these Gen M's at heart, know that, uh, you know, texting, instant messaging, uh, working through Facebook or MySpace, that those are, are not interesting technologies, but essential technologies. And, and although this isn't about technology, it's about collaboration, we are now in a, in a space in the ability to share knowledge within the government, between organizations, where we have to take into account this multi-generational communication modality and multi-generational learning. So, so where does that place us? So slide number three. Um, this places us in an interesting position where the kinds of social networks that we've had in the past, uh, sort of, you know, who knows who in an organization, who are our experts, 
Um, how do we work together either in a hierarchical, hierarchical or matrix organization? Those are not the same rules that bind our younger generation. Now, some of that changes as they come into a corporate culture. But, but really, rather than trying to change a whole generation, the opportunity exists to embrace what's good about that new kind of collaboration and bring that into our company, our government culture. So the social networks are critical. It's always been how people um, get work done, whether we explicitly talk about that or not. And the fact is, is that if we look at social intellectual capital, that's really developed by reciprocity, by the fact that somebody will call you and you feel that you can reach out and help them, even if it's not part of your day-to-day -day job, by the fact that in the future you have an implicit expectation that if you need something, you can ask that person for help or advice or information. And whether that reciprocity is explicit that you're both employed by the same organization or you're working on the same project, or whether it's implicit, which is how most of all of us on this line actually work together because we are in either the Federal Knowledge Management Working Group or Ontolog or some other distributed, non-funded, voluntarily endorsed <laughs> um, organization. Those, those networks and the intellectual capital of those networks is all based on trust and collaboration. It's interesting, um, if you saw the story the other day that, uh, that I guess it was Microsoft, bought a minority share in Facebook for $240 million, uh, which is mind-boggling. <laughs> but, I mean, it's not about the technology. It's all about the fact of the inherent intellectual and so primarily social capital of the Facebook network. Um, and so that just shows the, the kind of tangible value that corporations are placing on the idea of explicitly making your, uh, making your social networks explicit. So I, I think we're really at this point at which we've moved from, ooh, isn't this an interesting idea, to, oh my gosh, this is part of the new wave of how we're doing work in the future. So how do we build that trust? That trust becomes built over time and shared experiences. Primarily, it's built by personal experience, where you meet somebody personally, face-to-face. Um, -face. It's been the traditional way, but now and now, many um, people will meet and work together on projects and um, become friends, even though they've never actually met somebody face-to-face. -face. That's very true for the younger generation, but it's just as true if we think about those people who we work with daily or weekly, and yet... Primarily, we're only working with them via email, whether we're at the same corporation or whether they're people that we collaborate on one of our working groups. We also uh, build trust uh, by sharing an experience, by working together on a project or working together at a, at a workshop. We can transfer that trust as well. So uh, I don't actually think Peter and I have ever actually met each other face-to-face. <laughs> But we, we have a trust that we've built over time and a transfer of trust because we have many mutual people that we've worked with together. And then there's also shared values. So this trust can be built actually without any personal interaction. And we see that every day when we go out driving on the road. We don't know the other drivers at all, but we have a shared trust that we will operate by the same rules of the road because we have a shared goal of arriving at our destination safely. So the ways in which we build this trust, actually you can see, is not just the way we've traditionally thought about it, where things occur by face-to-face -face interaction and, you know, working at the same corporation. But this 
the trust, even for those of us who may be in an older generation, um, really has has built um, in capabilities to be available for the ideas of these virtual worlds. So at the same time, um, don't don't let me sound naive. I t completely understand the issues related to security, legality issues, proprietary issues, competitive knowledge and intelligence. Um, so while I'm, I'm talking about you know, knowledge sharing and trust and building that, I, I also understand the counterbalance with security issues. Um, you know, I do uh, work at NASA, so I, I, I get the idea of, of having to, to protect that knowledge, too. So, so all of the context that we live in and have to work in every day, and that has become ever more changing, is really one which leads us to the idea of, of using virtual worlds and virtual collaboration in a new way to help our, our government organizations and our, our companies. So if we go to slide four, Peter, then um, the potential benefits for the idea of virtual worlds, and, and let me just make sure I'm clear. So a virtual world is an immersive environment. It's, it's not just a wiki, which can, can seem like a virtual world at times at the, at the pace at which uh, Ontolog uses wikis, which is, which is lightning fast. Um, but it's really an immersive world where you go in as an avatar, where as, a, as something that looks like a person, um, and it's a three-dimensional world, the ones that we're talking about today. Those virtual worlds are persistent. They, they occur over time. So you go back... One, so you go in and you see structures and, and models of, of things and people, and you come back over time, and while the people, you know, come and go as they do in any place, the environment persists over time. So you can come back and expect things to be similar to when you left last time, and you can come back at any time, whether other people are there or not. So it's just like a physical environment that you would expect to persist over time. It just changes a lot more easily than trying to, say, remodel your your office or your home. So, so in these virtual worlds, the idea is that we can increase the efficiency of our organization. Um, we've all used teleconferences as we are today or video conferencing to reduce the cost of travel and, and have global or national collaboration. But it is, it is disembodying to listen to a voice over the teleconference. It's also um, difficult to get to a facility that can handle video conferencing, and that's a, a cost barrier for many individuals or organizations. Virtual worlds allow people to connect and collaborate in the same immersive way that a meeting room allows you to. So it's actually better than video conferencing once you get used to it. And it is, um, it is free. <laughs> so it's, it's a much um, more efficient capability. The reduced costs are because you can use some of these virtual worlds like the one we're using today in Second Life that are hosted by other organizations. They don't have to be hosted by your own organization, but you can have a space in those. Um, you can quickly find out what's effective. So, for example, NASA has been working in Second Life for almost a year now, and um, we are able to put ideas before the public. We have a weekly meeting open to anybody, anybody in the world, and we do have people from all over the world to come in, and we put out new ideas about educational products and outreach and um, launch events and would people be interested in attending those and all sorts of different ideas that we have that we would normally have to go through a rather rigorous process to give to the public and get citizen participation. And we're able to do that seamlessly, effortlessly, in a way that citizens are very engaged and feel that they're part of what NASA is just um, sort of a, a spectator.
There's also better learning. So we're using Second Life both for public education and, and NASA's mission, as uh, NOAA and the, the folks over at NOAA are, are very active in this area and using it for public education on issues of global climate change um, and other, other weather-related issues. The learning that occurs within Second Life, um, many universities use it. I'll talk a little bit about that later. And, um, and it provides people a better learning experience than any other either asynchronous collaboration capability or synchronous collaboration other than face-to-face. And sometimes face-to-face is just not a possibility. Um, people are more creative in Second Life. They're already in an environment where they feel that they're sitting in the room at the same time. So instead of a telecon where, where studies show that the dominant speaker it speaks 70% of the time in a Second Life environment, that primary speaker speaks only 30% of the time, which has that much more interaction. So it's a, it's a much better creative environment. Folks who are younger and coming into the corporate environment are expecting tools like instant messaging, um, wikis, and virtual worlds for collaboration. And, and studies have shown that, that people who come in to an organization as motivated and committed as they might start, if they don't have the ability to collaborate in ways that are comfortable to them, they tend to leave that organization. And our intelligence organizations have seen this. After 9-11, there was an influx of young people who came in because they wanted to make a difference. And, um, you know, interviews that I've had and, well, as anthropologists have had with those people have found that they get very frustrated with uh, the security requirements of those organizations. And so we, I think as a government organization, have an obligation to try to find a way to make those people and their, their means of communication more comfortable. Um, and then there's uh, just a, a better way to get um, sort of uh, new proposals for, for work, whether it's internal to your organization or your organization does proposals for outside work. Um, that is a much easier way to collaborate and get partnering. So just a quick sense of what's happening in Second Life um, is uh, slide five that a lot of universities are teaching in Second Life. And this is just a, a quick excerpt from what's happening over at Johns Hopkins University. So they've got a class looking at organizational learning and So we're on a slide called Virtual Worlds in Education. So in this case, for example, not only are, are universities teaching their classes, I like to say physically, but it's actually virtually in Second Life, where you come into a classroom and you participate that way, but they're also requiring that people use all of the technologies. They post videos to YouTube. They um, participate in networked communities like LinkedIn or Facebook or MySpace. They um, work with open source computing and that they come into Second Life because the, the way to understand how knowledge sharing is occurring for younger generations and perhaps in the future, certainly I, I personally believe this, is really using some of these new emergent technologies. Now, I don't think anyone's saying that Second Life is the only capability or that it's even how the final thing will shake out um, as we watch the web evolve over the last 15 uh, years or so. It's really changed a lot for those of us who have been in that generation. But, um, but certainly getting involved now into virtual worlds, I think, is a very good thing for any organization to start to understand how your organization can communicate effectively and how they can reach out to whoever your stakeholders are. Um, so the slide six gives you a little taste, for those of you who aren't going to be in Second Life today, of 
what we're actually doing. So in this case, the, the, the environments are very immersive. It, it, for those of you who've ever played any kind of a video game, it will look very familiar. That is the kind of uh, walk-through sort of capability where you can move around. You have a, a persona that walks through uh, different areas can fly through from one, what we call an island, to another. Um, virtual worlds are, are somewhat different from one to another. Second Life is typical of, of a genre of them that is this, um, this three-dimensional environment. The most important aspect of which is really the idea that people connect socially and in a, in a stronger way than they can in almost any other collaborative uh, media experience. So um, the pictures that you see on this slide, the first one is showing you a, an actual NASA meeting that we, we had. Um, you can see people seated around a physical table. Um, so I'm going to give a little explanation for those who are not familiar with Second Life so you can get a sense of what's going on here. Um, the people actually represent real people, so there's no sort of robots or, you know, mannequins per se in Second Life. I mean, a person is, is representing an, a real person who's online at that moment. And above the, your head, the little text you can't read but can kind of see in that picture tells people who, who that person is, and everybody has a Second Life name, which may or may not have any relationship to your name. And um, Charlie White and Gene Holm, for example, are Jet Burns and Debbie Barrymore, so it just happened to be names we had chosen for other reasons. And then... Above that is displayed what group you are actively participating in at that moment. So you could be a member of the NASA community or the NOAA community. You could be a member of, um, you know, some other group altogether. And people can join up to 25 or so different groups that they are participants of. Um, the picture below that shows actually my persona, Devery, um, in front of a spacecraft model that Jet built out. So in our NASA Second Life environment, we actually uh, let people come up, interact with our spacecraft models, learn more about missions to Mars, um, see rockets actually being launched in Second Life concurrent with our real-life launches down at Cape Kennedy. Um, and you can see below that a picture of our partners um, over at the International Space Flight Museum, our next-door neighbors in Second Life. And they have a, a whole set of international rocket models built out. Um, so you can actually, these are relatively in scale to how big you are in Second Life, and so you get a sense of how big some of these rockets are, how big some of the instruments are, relative sizes of planets. You can take a rocket right up to the space shuttle. So it's a very immersive um, theme park-like environment in which people can experience what your agency is doing. Um, we also had a President's Commission on looking at the implementation of the new space exploration policy. And in, in looking at that, the, some of the findings, this was really before the advent of virtual worlds, that pointed to the emergent virtual world as a necessity for how we interact with people and really pushed NASA into creating live action learning modules that allow people to interact with people at NASA in understanding things like orbital mechanics, the principles of spaceflight, and to do this for all ages. So if we go to slide number seven, um, we can see this is what we call second life in seconds. So just to give you a sense of how big this place is, 80% uh, of um, 
active Internet users in Fortune 500 companies will participate in a virtual world by 2011. I actually think it's going to be a lot sooner than that. That was a Gartner study. But um, there's a lot of momentum behind uh, virtual worlds, whether it's Second Life or Croquet or Quack or Virtual Magic Kingdom, or uh, which is Disney's offering it's the entertainment version of this. Um, there's a, a lot of things going on. There are over um, 10 million uh, current residents. The number changes so quickly, I, I, I can't remember what it is today, but there are over 10 million um, residents. Um, this slide's a little old. And there are anywhere between 40 and 50,000 concurrent users in Second Life at any, any time of the day or night. Um, Linden Labs, which is the company behind Second Life, has to install about 120 servers a week just to keep up with the demand. Now, for those of you who might have been watching TV last night, there was a CSI episode which began in, as most television episodes do, but quickly brought um, the investigation into Second Life. And at the end of the episode, you were left hanging and having to go into the CSI Second Life New York environment in order to solve the crime. So um, when I logged on, uh, even into the wee hours of the morning here on the Pacific Coast, uh, there were still about 12,000 people in that area wow. actively looking for uh, for clues and helping to solve the, the crime. So it's a, it's a compelling story for trying to bring people in and get them involved in an activity for an organization. So IBM uses this uses Second Life a lot. They have um, gone from being sort of big blue where you show up at the office in your blue suit uh, a decade ago to being a very distributed mobile workforce um, with a lot of folks working out of their homes, but they have all their town halls and company meetings in Second Life. Starwood Hotels built out a virtual hotel here so they could get comments from people about room walkthroughs and how things worked um, within the uh, within their uh, model of what their hotel would look like. Uh, companies do interviews so for students, and so they'll hold a virtual job fair in Second Life, and people can come in and they can do a, a first level of interview and get a sense of that person's capabilities. Um, and then NOAA's done some really interesting work in both uh, weather mapping and also creating uh, scenarios where you stand sort of at sea level and then watch as a tsunami hits and the devastation that occurs around you as you're standing there. So it's a very compelling understanding of sort of how weather touches us in our day-to-day -day lives. So if we go to slide number eight, um, just to, because I know a lot of people here are involved with government activities, although I know it's, it's not strictly government um, folks on the line or, or government contractors, um, but there's a fair number of things that are happening with other government agencies. So NOAA, NASA, State Department, OMB, um, the Swedish Embassy was the first actual government embassy that um, went ver uh, and had a full 24-hour staff virtual presence. CDC, NIH, um, Library of Congress, all of those groups have some activities underway or an investigation going on with um, efforts here. Every one of the presidential candidates has a headquarters in Second Life as well, and so there's uh, quite a lot of campaign information and, uh, and political activity in Second Life. Now, um, because we're from NASA, um, Charlie and I also looked at the aerospace industry, and so there's several 
uh, aerospace corporations that are active in Second Life. They use Second Life for marketing and sponsor engagement, for research and development, for immersive collaboration. How can we bring, for example, one of our big issues is how do we work with the Italian, the Chinese, the French, the European space agencies to be able to bring in engineering models of new spacecraft um, quickly from our CAD tools, be able to render those in Second Life, manipulate those together as a group as we look at them and have everybody else do the same so that we can quickly model new spacecraft. And the same is true for anything that can be modeled that has that three-dimensional flavor. It, it is such a compelling experience that um, it is difficult to describe <laughs> over the phone. Uh, but once people start doing that, it's, it becomes um, something they just don't want to abandon. Um, the, the pictures to the side here, that's the NOAA weather map, um, that first picture there, which uh, displays real-time imagery of, uh, sorry, imagery of real-time weather over a map, in this case, of the United States. And then the piece below is a, a different collaboration environment for a, another company. So on slide nine, um, what, what are we doing here at NASA? So we, took, we originally just sort of dipped our toes into the virtual world's capability to see how citizens saw government agencies participating in a virtual world and whether or not that was something that was an appropriate thing to do. Um, we've gotten nothing but very positive feedback on this. So we really think of this as a place for um, citizen participation, again, in a way that, that is much more than come to our NASA website and learn more about NASA. And, and I'm, I was project manager for the NASA website, the NASA portal, so, you know, I'm, I'm not saying anything against web spaces, but they are a, you know, if we build it, you will come to us kind of environment. In this case, we really want to bring what NASA is doing out to where people are, are experiencing their life. So if there are 10 million people here in Second Life, we want to bring NASA to them. If there are people on YouTube, we want to bring NASA videos there. So this is a, a chance to really participate with citizens where they're living as opposed to expecting them to come to your agency. So NASA is really focused on four thrusts in virtual worlds. The first and most important for us is really mission support. This is looking at modeling and simulation um, for our missions and uh, launch operations, collaboration, proposal development, and those sorts of things. We focus on outreach, which is what you'll see if you go to Second Life today um, in the NASA areas, and this is public engagement and participation. Um, there's a lot of education work we do, not just K through 12, which is our presence on the team grid, uh, but also education for the general public. Now, the, there's two Second Life instances. Depending on what age you are, you will get guided into one or the other. So for those of you 18 and over, which I think is probably everybody on this line, um, you'll come to what we call the main grid. And um, in the main grid are lots of different kinds of content, um, but you are generally going to be seeing sort of what we call PG-related content, but there's other content, just like there's other content on the Internet. Um, if you're a 13 to 17-year-old coming in, then you are directed to what we call the teen grid, and that's a very highly regulated, highly structured, um, highly policed area where only certain content can be posted, and um, teenagers are expected to only participate. And the only adults in that area are sanctioned adults who are there on an education um, 
endeavor. And so there's a lot of vetting of content, participation, and uh, information that goes on in that relative, that, that safe and safer environment. Um, and then we're also looking at uh, training. So how do we train our internal workforce rather than making them always come to a class and fly someplace or come listen to a webinar? How do we make that more interesting for them? So um, the picture you see over here to the side is actually a high-resolution image um, 3D map of Victoria Crater, which is on the surface of Mars. And you can see our little Mars rover um, over there on the side. So this is where our Mars rovers are right now. And we wanted to get people a sense of how they could sort of see what's happening right now on the surface of another planet in a, in a very rich environment. So, so that's one of the kinds of activities we have. Um, we have Explorer Island, which is where this meeting is being held concurrently in Second Life. And that's an area to explore about NASA and uh, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and what we're doing. There's also a, a partner area, one of our next door neighbors, called NASA CoLab, which is a place to just have general meetings. Um, uh, launch operations training. So we're just starting with our Cape Canaveral, Cape Kennedy folks on that, which is where we'll be able to, for our own launch team and also for the public, let them launch a rocket in Second Life and uh, see all the things that can go wrong and right as that happens. We're looking at modeling for our constellation program, which is our moon to the Mars, to Mars and beyond. Um, and then NASA is having a 50th anniversary this year. So we're holding a series of activities in Second Life and with the Smithsonian Folk Life Festival next summer that will be celebrating um, the activities of NASA. And then we do a lot of uh, new work now, actually, in conference support. So that events like this, we've had, we had a large event um, in July that was an international workshop for knowledge management in um, aerospace. And all of those we hold, try to hold concurrently in Second Life and real life so that people can start to collaborate and participate. So if we go to the next um, slide, this is a little game I like to call Match the Avatar. So this is slide number 10. Um, on one side, on the left side, you'll see here pictures of people in real life, and on the right side, their avatars. So this is their personas in Second Life that they have created. Um, in some cases, people make their avatars look like themselves. And I think you'll probably be able to solve this little game <laughs> and take out which person and which avatar are the same. So um, I'll tell you the answer key. So the woman in number one is actually the woman is dressed exactly the same way in <laughs> number C, and the gentleman in two is the same gentleman as in A, and three is B. I think that one's pretty clear. If we go to the next slide, slide number 11, this is maybe not so clear. So here we have three young people on the left-hand side and their avatars on the right. And in this case, um, the uh, maybe the easiest one to find first is the, um, if you guys have gotten the to figure the game out. So number three, that young lady is actually A, the, the woman above. And she doesn't entirely look the same, but that's okay. In Second Life, you can actually look almost any way you want. Uh, the young man in number one is the, uh, the felt fighter in C. So he, again, can choose what he would like to, to look like and be like in Second Life. And maybe the most interesting one is the young man in number two, who is the uh, extremely strong robot man in B. So in this case, um, this young man is obviously suffering from a severe disability in real life. But in Second Life, his life is what he wants it to be. And there was an interesting article in the Washington Post last 
week called Real Hope in Virtual Worlds. And it gave some compelling stories about people who had um, both physical and uh, emotional and mental disabilities that, that kept them from participating in the real world in ways that were um, supportive of them in, in, at all. And all of them had found what they felt were true friends and a complete opportunity at a second life in second life because they were able to transcend barriers that had been imposed upon them in a way that let them participate fully and feel confident about themselves. So even though we're talking about using these worlds in ways that allow us to be more effective as an organization to think about multi-generational learning, I think there's a, an added issue for us, especially as government organizations, when we think about what's the true spirit behind Section 508 compliance and making sure that people with disabilities are able to engage in government activities. This really gives a new aspect to that, um, that idea. So what I wanted to do is, is sort of uh, wrap it up and let us go into the virtual world. Now, Peter, I don't think we're going to be able to display Second Life through the meeting capability. Is that right? Uh, no. Uh, I, I did not had the chance to install Second Life on the uh, VNC desktop. Uh, and, and I've kind of done uh, some experiments in that regard, and uh, due to the high-end graphic requirements of the virtual world, it, it doesn't feed very well. So I'll do my best to describe some of these things. Um, it would be helpful if I had an idea of who is not in the audience. I just need an account. Uh, Before that, I mean, uh, could, uh, we have one person from the 202 area code, uh, phone number ending 9983, who has had his or her hands up for a long time. So maybe the person, if you unmute to a star three, identify yourself and uh, go ahead with the question. We apologize. I didn't want to interrupt uh, Jean during the talk. Person from area code 202 and phone number ending in 9983. I mean, you're the only person with this, your hands up. So, Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, Go ahead. Okay. This is Giora Hagar. Uh, Jean, I have a question. Some of the backgrounds that are uh, showing you standing up uh, in the virtual world, who created yep. that environment? I'm sorry, Giora, the last part was... Who created that environment? Did you do it yourself, or was it done by somebody else? So the way it works in Second Life is that you can buy either a small space of an island, um, or you can buy an island. Basically, it's it's a lease of the software, but it's a lease of the virtual land. Right. Um, and it's about $2,400 a year, so it's not really expensive when we think about software products. Right. And then you can build out what you would like on that land. And the building of that process is really through the creation of, of what we call prims or primitive models. Mm -hmm. And the best um, modeler I know is actually Charlie White. Oh, <laughs> uh, blushing, blushing. <laughs> so, um, so Charlie built out, along with the help of, of many people in our NASA community, but it was primarily Charlie's work, that shows all of the things in the back of the NASA areas. Mm -hmm. Eric Haxhaven, um, 
I, I sometimes get people's real life and second life things mixed up. Uh, from Noah built out the pieces that you see, for, and his team built out the pieces in the Noah environment. And then, so, so some of the, the pictures I showed you, I think I pointed out, were other islands. But the ones you see on the Let's Enter the Virtual World page and some of the other pages, all of that background material was built by um, Charlie and his team. But uh, may I interrupt one second? I see the ontology screen, and I see you, Jean, and Charlie showing... RLRL and the future presentation on ontology in knowledge management and decision support. Yeah, so so we have the ability to to put up even more than just a simple PowerPoint slide. You know, we're sitting here at our uh, Tonight Show style uh, set on the NASA facility, and we do have a title slide up. And we've also, for people who are in world, we've been advancing the PowerPoint slides uh, on the screen, so just as if we were uh, participating, uh, if we were there. A couple months ago, this is one of our second in the series of uh, events. Uh, a couple months ago, we had a knowledge management event, and we had 100 people in real life at Caltech, and we had 40 people in the virtual world attending, and two of the presenters in the virtual world were actually, one was in Boston and the other one was in Canada. And they presented their PowerPoint slides directly up on the stage and we could hear their voice, as you're hearing me now, and we could ask them questions. And it was very interesting because after the the initial, wow, this is different, wore off, which took about five minutes, I found myself actually looking at the real-life stage for the presenter, and he wasn't there. He was in the virtual world. And we were interacting and talking with them. So within this environment, right now we have people sitting. There's the, the group has grown. Uh, we, we, we have about a dozen people or more sitting in the audience, and they can see the, the world around us. And with a certain level of skills, learning how to use remote camera skills and learning how to sit down. We've had a few people standing up because they don't know how to sit down. And that's okay. I don't know how to sit down. Ah, okay. So, so there's, there is that little skill level, you know, the learning curve of interacting, uh, in that. So that's what I consider a yellow flag. It's not a red flag, but it is a, a yellow flag because it's not as easy as just going to a web page. But once you start becoming a user within this environment and you start getting the sense or feel of it, uh, you can start walking around and, and exploring. So um, I want to kind of address that question of creation within this world. And uh, on the Explorer Island, I laid out a floor plan and a facility plan, basically, of the entire facility. So we have the JPL Mall, for those who have been to JPL. Uh, we have our, our mall, which is kind of symbolic area for JPL because that's where we hold most of our events. So we made a familiar area for people coming <coughs> in so they can equate to the, to the virtual world as they can in the real world. So we have trash cans. We, have, uh, we even have the deer that are in real life at JPL walking on the sidewalks. We have them in the virtual world. So I laid out the sidewalks and the basic infrastructure. And then we started working with uh, the people 
visitors that are coming, and they would approach me and they would say, Mr. Burns, Jet Burns, uh, I have a model of the MER rover. Uh, would you be interested in looking at it? Well, due to various building quality, we kind of had a, like a little America's Got Talent type contest and selected the the model that was the most accurate depiction uh, of the MER. So then we created a club called Second Life Friends of JPL, and we're going to create another one called Second Life Friends of NASA. And uh, they were able to donate their model and we were able to put it on our island. So this is what I call a one-to-many relationship because we had a direct one-to-one participation with a member of the public, a worldwide member, because we have people in Canada, Germany, and recently there's been a large group of people from Spain, the Sondas Espialis, who are actually in the audience right now. There's a couple of them there. They've been attending our launch events. They've been attending our talks. And they're very interested. And due to the time change, they actually hold meetings in the early morning hours, which is, the, you know, daytime for them, before uh, any of us come populate the area. But what they've done is they've developed these models. And this one-to-many relationship is that um, they build the model. That's the one-on-one relationship. But then, and so they, they, they come to know a lot about the model. But now that model is out on public display, and that's where the many come in, because now we get thousands of people walking through the facility, and it's like uh, once a year we have a JPL open house in real life for one Saturday and Sunday of the year. We have, you know, all our displays out. But this is like a 24-7, 365 open house, which is, which is not just uh, outreach, and, and public education, but it's, it's also inspiration. It's people who are coming in and walking around. Now, true story, and this has happened more than once, but I've had one lady, uh, one avatar show up, and um, I'm wearing my, my name tag above my head. It says Jet Burns, and it says NASA JPL staff. And, and her avatar walked up, and she said, Do you really work for NASA? I said, yes, and then there was silence. And so I, I said, it, is everything okay? And she said, no, sorry, pardon me for a minute. In real life, I'm actually crying a little bit. And I said, oh, my gosh, what did I do? She says, uh, I've all, I'm 60 years old. I live in Minnesota. I've been a, a fan of NASA all my life, and I never, ever thought I would actually meet or be, or be able to talk to someone from NASA. That was incredible for me because when I walk around within this world wearing the NASA tag, I feel like a rock star. (laughs) People actually come up and they start engaging, you know, and they they engage you in such a way where you can hear uh, passion or you can read the passion because many of it's text-based and some of it is is, uh, sound-based because we can now talk within these worlds. And so that has had a, a major effect on me because um, as we've been building stuff and actually we've been having launch events, this last Tuesday we launched, uh, for those who are in-world, you see there's a, a space shuttle uh, above us. 
and that space shuttle is floating above a, a picture of the Earth in orbit. Well, what we had done is we had actually launched a 3D virtual uh, uh, model, complete with the external tank and the solid rocket boosters. And in real time, synchronized with NASA TV, because we can actually broadcast NASA TV in the world simulcast. So in real time, as the, the real uh, discovery was ascending into orbit, our model was also ascending, complete with flame, fire, and smoke. And as the SRBs fell off, we ejected the SRBs on the model. When the external tank fell off, uh, we ejected the external tank. And then when the uh, the OMBs fired, we fired those engines, and then it was in orbit. After that event, we had people sending me messages that said, that was fantastic. They felt like they were really there. And part of that is because you are there. The world is virtual. The prims don't really exist. The land doesn't really exist. That's all virtualized. But the visualization is real. The communication is real. The concepts are real. The collaboration is real. And so that is getting us to the next driving point, that we are wanting to look at collaboration in such a way as, hey, this may be the new way we can actually interactively design a real spacecraft within this environment. You know, there's a million questions that have to be addressed. So we have to look at ITAR restrictions, and we have to look at, you know, uh, uh, all the security that goes within these virtual worlds. But this is where I look at it and say, you know, this is a biplane technology. It's just like the Wright brothers being down on Kitty Hawk, and we're learning how to fly. In, in our minds, we all have pre-knowledge of 747s and stealth fighters. But in this world, if we look at this as we're taking baby steps, you know, the, we have to catch up with our expectations. So sometimes Tom Soderstrom was very helpful to, to uh, get me to lower people's expectations because we're still in this biplane technology, even though we have pre-knowledge of space shuttles and other advanced aircraft. So that's an analogy I use that the Wright brothers cannot uninvent the airplane. And we cannot uninvent these virtual worlds. They're, they're here. So it's almost our duty to ex- that we can. And it's been different from a web page in that people are now closer. They're interacting with us. On a web page, we take some pretty pictures and we post it and we put some text and we put education material. And it's just out there. In this world, we can do the same thing, but we can also walk around this world. We can reach out and actually shake people's virtual hands, or we can even give them a virtual hug, which is kind of cool. Uh, so so I don't know if I've answered all those questions or, or which way I've gone. Uh, there, there, are, there are over a couple dozen people in the, in the audience. I could take them around. Uh, the island, but I think I think describing this to the to the community that that does not see it um, maybe maybe more. Or I, I think maybe we can host some questions. Been, I don't know how we're I've doing. I've been with traveling time. different parts of the um, Explorer Island and seeing what all it has. 
Yes, and um, so on Explorer Island. If you double click, it teleports you to that area. So, Charlie, why don't we um, just wait a sec to see if there are other questions um, before we, we go too much more onto the island. Okay. From the general question. Yes. Yes, there's a question from someone uh, from area code 301 with this number ending 0725. Uh, if you do a star 3 to unmute your line and uh, identify yourself. Hi, Gene. This is Seth Morgan from NGA. Hey, Seth. I had a quick question on uh, something you touched on earlier on slide 3. You talked about the counterbalance for security of information, whether it was uh, classified or um, proprietary information. I was wondering if you had any examples or knew of any examples where um, a virtual world has been created in a secure environment, whether it was government or uh, corporate. Uh, yeah. yeah, so let me, there's there's layers of security, and given where you're from, you'll probably be interested in, in the deepest. <laughs> um, so, for example, in Second Life, you can have a private island, which is what Aerospace Corporation does. We're about to move into that environment as well. We wanted to kind of make sure our investment was appropriate for our stakeholders, but the public really seems engaged, and our internal workforce does too. A private island allows you to have off-grid, so other people can't get there, but Linden uh, company people could be there the same way somebody who's hosting your physical servers somewhere could potentially see traffic going over. Yep. Um, there are other, and we're working with Linden Labs to see if they can't actually provide a subscription service that allows you to host your own instance of Second Life to allow that 3D environment within your own firewall. Um, there are other companies like Croquet and Quack that allow that um, today, and so those are ones that I know people and, and others here at JPL are exploring for more um, secured environments. I don't know of anyone who's using these environments in a truly classified um, piece, but I am working with the Air Force exploring that right now. So, um, so we're, we were just we've been working with the virtual world, um, looking at the deeper kinds of general, unclassified, but secured issues. And then with Air Force, I'm just now starting to get into the, the truly classified capabilities. Right. Anybody else on the line have any more information about those? Yeah, and I, I have just a question that, to ask. Ravi Sharma here. It, uh, I, I guess uh, Seth was, has, uh, has not finished yet. Uh, oh, okay. I, I just was wondering, uh, how do you spell quack? Um, Q W A K. Okay, thanks. Sorry, just now. Uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, mine was, how do we relate this second life experience with ontology studies? Oh, so Peter, do you want to handle that one, or shall I? Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. But, but, I mean, tell everyone to come find out. <laughs> so partly we got into this discussion um, because we're going to be having a mini-series with um, ontologies and knowledge management for decision support, and that will start in two weeks. And I think you might have seen some of the announcements um, that came out. This was one of the three meetings mentioned in, in those announcements. Um, I suggested to Peter that we offer those um, not just on the traditional telecon, but also offer some of them in Second Life. So to allow people to, to understand it. And we realized we really needed a precursor tutorial, this very session that you're in today, before we kind of confounded everything <laughs> together. So the idea of how this works 
specifically with ontologies is that we're going to be using this as an additional collaboration environment for the larger discussion of ontologies and knowledge management and decision making and decision support. Um, we wanted to give people a chance to get familiar with virtual worlds. And um, the way we use ontologies within a virtual world is, is really sort of very minor at this point of really how do we organize the information, the content, how do we think of sort of virtual GIS, how do we create those, those physical environments and, and architectures in the broadest terms of ontology to create a conversation that makes sense. Um, so that's, that's really the, so it is a, a loose coupling today, but a very strong coupling that you'll see in two weeks. Okay, uh, I don't see uh, any more hands, so one last call. If you have a question, uh, please press 1-1 one, one on your keypad uh, to show your hand, and when you're recognized, uh, acknowledged, then go, go ahead. Yeah, I have one hand up, and uh, please press a star 3, the person who just uh, put his hand up, and, and go ahead. Hi, this is Teresa Bailey. Can you hear me? Yes. Um, why did it get dark? Ah, well, in the virtual world, um, one day is four hours. And, and so the sun has been going down and it's been getting dark. Now, you can actually con can control that by going to your world and then scroll down to four sun. And then you can select between sunrise, noon, sunset, midnight, or back to the region default. So the reason they did that is because, uh, you know, if someone is uh, within the world in, in a brief amount of time, it gives the sense of watching the sun rise and the sun down. And because you're in that virtual world, uh, right now there's no shadows projecting, but you can see the different colors projecting. So there is the oranges of a sunset. And you can actually, over the water or over behind the trees, you can see the, the virtual representation of the sun and the moon uh, come up. So it adds to the realistic environment. Now, when we're talking virtual worlds, we could basically do anything. We, we could be glowing balls of gas within some type of interspatial uh, nebula. And right off uh, from the very beginning, Linden Labs wanted to create a ground level, a sea level, a blue sky and, and trees. So it would give, uh, you know, that relationship from a real life to a second life. And that's one of the reasons they gave it that name, the second life. Uh, so, so they tried to make it equate. Now, ironically, uh, as we evolve, we're pushing back with Linden Labs, and we're actually looking to alter the environment because, well, we want to create Mars. And on Mars, there's one-third of the gravity, and the sky color is different, and the sun is a whole lot smaller, and there's no Earth-Moon. So right now, if you go to the Mars, you would see the Earth-Moon in the background, which is totally wrong. Um, so, so we're evolving. The technology is evolving, and you know we're getting to the to, to the place where we can try to uh, redefine these requirements that we need to, and change the change the physics 
as well. So it's not just one G, it's one third G or, or whatever. But that's why it's gotten dark here on Explorer Island. But you can change that if you if you want it to be sunlight or you want it to be brighter, uh, you can just go ahead and make that brighter. Now, if you notice, on the PowerPoint slides and on the signs, they are already bright, just like a projector would be projecting it in real life. And so we can change that. I can also create lights as well. So I could I could come in and put in um, street lights, and then that does light up the area as well. Okay. Uh, one uh, one question from uh, someone uh, at the six six one area code. If you do a star three unmute and identify yourself. Yeah, Peter, Frank Alvedra is out here on the West Coast. Um, you answered the question about the relationships between second life and <clears throat> ontologies, but how about the reverse question? What do we think is going to be the benefit of ontological um, engineering, if you will, or ontology development into the virtual world? Oh, my God, that's going to be great. Um Gene, you want to take that one before I wax philosophically? Sure. Well, I think that's part of this six-month miniseries is trying to, to bring forward some of these newer technologies into the conversation for both ontology and for knowledge management um, in the context of decision support to say, you know, where is it that we should be thinking of? Where is it that people are starting to do work in these areas? Um, again, I'm, I'm very... Um, Interested, and we have a lot of people who are GIS folks who are interested in how a physical space, I mean, how you architect a building, a physical building, to create, you know, dynamics and conversations. Now we have the ability to do anything we want in a virtual world. How do we create those environments to, to drive conversations for participation or collaboration or creativity or innovation? It seems to me that the idea of uh, an ontology and kind of broadening it to how do we categorize, organize, create that context. Um, it seems to me that there's a connection there. I, I'm not the ontology experts, you guys are, um, that, that is a possibility that is, is ripe for exploration. Is, is there a, is, Peter, maybe you can answer this. Is there a second life uh, top-level ontology, or um, is it fall under one of the other... Uh, um, um, ontologies or ontology development efforts. I I the to I have totally no idea. I'm trying to find out how to sit down. I mean, <laughs> it's second life. So <laughs> how far I've got. <laughs> but well, I, I would be very interested to to find that out. I mean, within the next six months, actually. So the reason I ask it, you know, Peter, you you know my relationship with the with the NASA guys and the, and the Constellation program, and I can see where the where why it would be important to be able to do this. But I'm trying to relate it back to the data architecture work and the work that those guys are doing to see if that's something that's tied, if not. Uh, so I can answer that specific question now that that you've clarified. So so um, so I'm working with Andy Shane on the overall information and data management program formulation at NASA for the CIO's office. And so my impetus in working with Peter to get this whole mini-series started was trying to really understand what others are doing in that area. 
for data modeling, data architectures, information management, and how we use knowledge management um, to help drive to better decisions in our organization and give people access to the information they need at the moment they need it and to, to, to be able to work both on a human-readable interface to all of that as well as a machine-to-machine readable interface right. to that. So, so that's kind of the, the thing that's on the plate for Mike Hecker and Andy Shane and I and I really wanted to reach out to a broader community to understand what was going on in that space and to present some of our thoughts. Virtual worlds are one of the ways in which we're, we've been working at, at NASA in education, the chief engineer's office, and now with the CIO's area, to look at how we can collaborate more effectively. So it is a enabling technology to how we drive the embodiment of those data architectures and data services. Thank you, Jean. Uh, thank you, uh, Frank. Uh, we've got three more hands up. Uh, let's start with the, the person from a 915 area code. He or she has had his or her hands up for a while. Uh, 915 area code person? Number yes, this is Ross Dahman. Yes, uh, could you repeat your name again? Yes, uh, Ross Dahman. Um, if you will, please, if you could elaborate further on what might be a crawl, walk, run strategy to get up to speed uh, with Second Life and indicate what time or cost you might estimate to achieve those different levels. And what are you, who are you representing? Uh, really, I guess myself at this point. Okay. Okay. Um, uh, crawl, crawl uh, grab an avatar. Get an avatar and go into the world. Uh, explore, explore the world. Beware, there is the seedy side of the world just as there is like on the internet. Uh, we're not immune to that within the world. But, you know, just go in knowing that that's there. Uh, explore the, uh, uh, once you're in world, then, uh, the walking level is start collaborating with various, uh, groups that are inside. There are, uh, special interest groups. Uh, like the educators have a whole world uh, that that they're doing. There's business people who are doing stuff. There's, you know, car clubs, depending on what your interest is. There's uh, space organizations. I encourage everybody who is in world to join Welcome to NASA. What I will do is, is I'll offer that membership to each person who is in the audience so you can hear about events. Uh, so that's the walking step. The running step is to consider purchasing uh, land and, and starting to play with building objects and then, uh, or even an island if you're part of a, a larger corporation. The costs are anywhere from 3K a year to 5,000 a year. If you're an educational or government, it's about 3K, but if you're a private organization, or a profit organization, it'll be about 5K per year. Uh, once you start building that way, you can, this is where ontology really comes in. And again, I don't have working knowledge. I do have the philosophical knowledge of, you know, who are we, where are we, what are we doing, what are we going. Um, behind the stage, or behind the audience actually, is a cubicle. In, in that cubicle, uh, you know, why, why build a cubicle in, in Second Life when I can have a full closed door office on, on the side of a beach? Why even have an office? I could just be on the side of the beach. Uh, but what we found out is just sitting at the cubicle, people come by and see me there and 
they're comfortable in sitting down and talking and discussing, uh, you know, various uh, aspects about the virtual world. And so uh, I, I see uh, the disciplines of ontology have a great effect within the virtual world. So I'm looking for it. But that's that's my crawl, walk, run scenario. Get an avatar, join groups, meet with people, and and then then look at building and doing that. Thanks very much. And just to note, the last slide of the presentation Uh has the steps on on how to start an account, where to go, how to how to basically begin, and there is no cost. There's no cost as a as individual user. Yeah, as an avatar. Okay, uh, a question from a person with the area code seven eight one. You have had your hand for a while. Uh, please do a star three, identify yourself, and uh, let's make sure we can hear you. Then go ahead. Yes. Hello. Uh, can you say something? I can't hear you. Uh, I cannot hear this person from 781, although I, you have... Hello, can you hear me now? Oh, all right. Hello? Uh, yeah. Okay, yes, go ahead. Hello? Yes. This is Ken? Yes, we can hear yes. you. Can hear you now. Okay, good. Um, I um, I went through the various um, procedures that were mentioned, you know, to try to get this uh, client installed. I tried it on two machines with completely different operating systems. Both of them are pretty good quality machines. And in both cases, it failed. Uh, it crashes on a Windows XP that I have, and it um, gives all kinds of error messages on a Linux machine. Now, it, it appears that the specific technical requirements that they have for Second Life uh, preclude my using either of those machines. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, because of these very specific requirements that Second Life has, that we're basically excluding a lot of individuals from uh, participating in any of these uh, forums that we are setting up. I mean, uh, in my case, for example, it doesn't appear that I can participate because although my machines are quite good quality, quite recent, neither one matches what they need. So I'm wondering what the whether this is going to be an issue. I mean, you, you state that Second Life is free. It doesn't appear so. It looks like I would have to actually go out and buy a quite different machine from what I have right now in order to match their requirements. It, it's almost hard for any of us, of us to believe uh, nowadays uh, when we look back. Uh, but I was faced with some of these same challenges, bringing uh, a whole new technology that the naysayers would say would never catch on. And that was in 1993 when we were bringing Mosaic and and starting to build web pages. Uh, we actually had, I remember those days quite well, the exact word for word, everything you had just said uh, of, of the web pages uh, was true back then because at the time, even showing a simple GIF or, you know, JPEG wasn't even invented yet, but uh, simple uh, BMP graphics, uh, many computers could not do uh, because there were still EGA cards out there in, in a lot of uh, older technology. So it's a valid uh, uh, 
Yeah, criticism. but in my case, it's not older technology. It just seems to be different technology. In fact, my technology is quite good. Right, but without doing a full uh, triage and finding out what what it could be, you know, I, I'm, I'm only answering it in general um, because there sometimes it's just based on a, a video card setting or your drivers or things like that. And more often, I've seen it solved than than not because it is it does run across a very wide uh, range of platforms. But when you're trying to do it last minute, I you know it's hard to triage exactly what the what the problem is. So let me just um, mention, this, this is a supplemental capability for this mini-series. It is not going to be the primary way for meeting. So everybody who's been meeting through Ontolog or through the Federal KM group or other groups through telecons and wiki, we will have that as our primary means of working through the series. We just wanted to offer the virtual world as an experimental secondary capability. And if it turns out to be blocked by too many organizations or, or because there's graphics cards issues, there's, there's just problems, then we, we won't continue to use it. But I wanted to at least make the opportunity available. So I completely understand um, the issues. I can only use it on one of my two home computers myself. So. Um, it's, it's nothing about your selection of computers or anything except that um, it will not inhibit you in any way from participating. Yeah. And, and it, is yeah, still, uh, it still is a biplane technology. Uh, it, you know, it, the Wright brothers can't fly to uh, London, England when they had the Wright Flyer. And, and, and so it's, it, there still are some challenges uh, that with the platform. And matter of fact, I, uh, as I've been sitting here talking, answering this question, uh, my avatar had crashed. And so I had to re-log back into the world and, and you know, rejoin our, uh, our, our, our fellow participants inside the world. So, so it's not by far the answer, but it is an answer which is evolving and it's coming to light. And a lot of people are starting to come in. There, there are already uh, almost 10 million people who have signed on accounts, and we're receiving... Uh, concurrent sign-ons of 40,000 people an hour who are in, in, in the world. So it, uh, I hear you. I feel your pain. There are some computers oh, no, at home I, 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 it doesn't run on either. But I think, I think you're missing my point. I think it's really great that you know, we've been doing this, but, and I'm sure that I'll resolve my technical difficulties after a while. I'm, I'm more concerned that we have as kind of primary medium uh, the uh, you know mechanism that is, is more general. Yeah, and I think Gene, and we can Gene coordinate. Hit that. As Gene said, we need to coordinate. Be careful about coordinating these two worlds so that they don't get out of sync. Completely. Yeah, that's quite valid. I think that that's that's what I was really getting at. Um, I'm sure as time goes on, you know, people will resolve these difficulties. Thank you, Ken. Uh, one person, person from 703 area code with uh, phone number ending in 7399. If you do a star three uh, and identify uh, yourself. Dr. Ravi Sharma. Oh, okay. Dr. Sharma, go ahead. And again, I have uh, one is a brief comment on the last conversation, which is I have a laptop. And I had first time trial and I had no difficulty as such. So maybe it would be nice to start with a new boot 
cold boot and then see if, uh, or if there is deficiency in graphics card. That was relating to just entry into the second life question. Now my, my question to you is from the perspective of the gentleman who asked what can second life or what can virtual reality learn from ontologies. It's a very profound question because you carry sense of not only time and space, but you carry the context and vocabulary with you. If you could transfer ontological hyperspace or whatever you want to call it into a virtual environment so that the participants know that language, know about semantics and terminologies and notations in that language, and they are practically into a virtual modeling or learning environment at some level, and the level of expertise also you can communicate. So you can transition in and out of those contexts by using ontology as a machine learning experience. Of course, it's part of knowledge engineering as well. A great insight. This also okay. might solve a particular problem that we people are facing in IT security. Right now, IT security is confronted with role-based authentication and authorization. So, legacy systems do not have that granularity that suppose you were in a supply chain, you were a receiving clerk, you could receive, but you could not order it as a manager by going into the same system, another purchase order. So taking that kind of analogy, the ontology-based environment creation would automatically limit you to your roles, and if you change those roles, you would transform or take another avatar and then be able to access next level of access. That's all. Thank you. Uh, I don't see any more hands, so uh, let me uh, hand the floor back to Gene uh, and Charlie and uh, see where you want to take us. Thank you. It was a great learning experience for me. So a great big thank you for all of you in this experiment in collaboration. Um, and I know for some of you who I can see in world that it was an experiment that you were able to fully participate in. And for some of you, it was just a chance to start to get familiar with these this type of technology. So just this is an ongoing open invitation for two things. One is that um, NASA, NOAA, OMB. There are lots of uh, government agencies participating in Second Life, but certainly you're welcome to come at any time to Explore Island. Take your time. Come in world if you'd like to, to get familiar with it. Um, the directions tell you how to reach out to, to Jet and Jeffrey, Charlie and I, in world, and, uh, and we can uh, walk you through it. So feel free to, to do so. We're in world pretty frequently um, and uh, and both working hours and non-working hours. Yeah, so sometimes 1 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> around the clock. Um, secondarily, this is a segue into the mini-series, so I'm going to put a plug in, Peter, for our mini-series on ontologies and knowledge management for decision support. So um, 
we will be using this type of an environment as an adjunct to the normal traditional um, telecon and ontolog wiki and FedKM listserv uh, capabilities to make sure that people will be able to participate in that discussion and exploration of not just virtual worlds, but, but emergent um, technologies, emergent uh, ways and methods of working together, and where are two interesting fields um, are ever more uh, intersecting. So that was just a, a plug for the, the future. And if you have questions or as you get in, in world, feel free to, to email um, Charlie or I. You can catch me at jholm at jpl.nasa.gov or just devry at jpl.nasa.gov works too. Yes, and I'm also jet.burns. Uh, for if, when you come in world uh, and you do need a new wardrobe, uh, Come hook up. I've, I've done girls' nights, you know. <laughs> uh, there's suits for the guys. There's uh, appropriate dress for the women. Uh, one of the places you can do is a uh, New Citizens Plaza, a New Citizens Mall. Uh, they have free uh, items that you can wear and, and attach. Uh, so there, there's all kinds of things that you can do. Uh, there's a lot of education within the world. Uh, it's... Uh, it's not set up the 18 over grid according to the user guides. You know, children under 18 are not really allowed. They are excluded from this world due to the mature content. Uh, but we have found that some people uh, do over the shoulder, like parental guidance type uh, activities, where they take them through learning environments. And so that that's something that you know you have to decide on your own what's appropriate. Uh, but there's just a lot of capabilities that are here, and um, uh, you can explore in many different ways that you, that you may not have thought of before. I have to keep a bottle of aspirin next to my desk because it, it challenges my real-world thinking in what we can do in the virtual world. And so far, it's, I'm almost a year old in the virtual world, and so far it's just been amazing. And And... Uh, how, do, how can I say it, evolving uh, in my own sense, in my own um, mentalities of what can and can't be done. So I thank you for the time that uh, you've given us to uh, do our presentation. Okay, uh, without further questions, uh, on behalf of the Ontolog community and, and the KMGov uh, and everybody else who are able to join us today, uh, let's thank Jane and Charlie for putting this phenomenal session together, preparing us for the ontology in knowledge management in decision support series that is launching in two weeks. Uh, a lot of you have already signed up for both sessions. Uh, some of you only registered for this session, and if you would, uh, you plan to come, you drop a note, and the series is going to go on for six months, and uh, there's a lot more uh, that's coming. So thank you again, Jean and Charlie. Peter, and thanks, thanks everybody everyone. for your patience as we uh, start this journey together. Oh, thank you, Peter. Oh, thank you. Bye, everyone.